I had so much to say and no one to listen. And then it happened. It was the oddest, most unexpected thing. I began writing what they call a mission statement. Not a memo, a mission statement. You know, a suggestion for the future of our company. A night like this doesn't come along very often. I seized it. What started out as one page became 25. Suddenly, I was my father's son again. I was remembering the simple pleasures of this job, how I ended up here out of law school, the way a stadium sounds when one of my players performs well on the field, the way we are meant to protect them in health and in injury. With so many clients, we had forgotten what was important. I wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote, and I'm not even a writer. I was remembering even the words of the original sports agent, my mentor, the late, great Dickie Fox, who said, The key to this business is personal relationships. Suddenly, it was all pretty clear. The answer was fewer clients. Less money. More attention. Caring for them. Caring for ourselves and the games, too. Just starting our lives. Really. Hey everybody, welcome to Hope. My name is Scott Rains. I'm the lead pastor up at Hope's Ankeny campus. And uh, wherever you are, however you may be joining us, so glad that you are taking time in your day uh, right now to worship with us. That is part of the opening scene of the movie Jerry Maguire. Uh, Tom Cruise plays this sports agent who's having an epiphany, if you will, a rebirth. He's starting to see things maybe for the first time in his life. And he wakes up in the middle of the night, he starts writing this 25-page manifesto, a vision for an entirely new way of doing things. Fewer clients, less money, more attention. And, And as that scene keeps playing out, he says things like, I was becoming the me I always wanted to be. I was 35 years old, he says, my life was just beginning. And that's where I want to begin today with this question. When will your life begin? I'm 49 years old. My next birthday, I will be 50. I'm trusting someone will give me one of those coffee mugs that says life begins at 50. It'll go really nice with my mug that says life begins at 40 and the mug that says life begins at 30. I think I also have a mug that says life begins after coffee. When will your life begin? Maybe some of you say, oh, i got to wait for my life to begin. Life will begin after I graduate or after I get my dream job, dream house, dream spouse. When will your life begin? In Acts chapter 9, we are introduced to another man in his 30s whose life is about to begin. His name is Saul. He's on his way to the Syrian city of Damascus. He's going to round up some Christians there, arrest them throw them in jail because of their belief in Jesus. But a funny thing happens on the way to Damascus. Saul meets Jesus. And the way Luke, the author of the book of Acts, writes about this encounter that Saul has with Jesus, it has everything to do with vision. I'll pick up the story in verse 3. As he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice keep reading through the story, it becomes clear that voice is the voice of Jesus. Here's verse 8. 
Saul picked himself up off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he was blind. So his companions led him by the hand to Damascus. He remained there blind for three days and did not eat or drink. Saul makes it to his destination, but along the way, he loses his sight. Meanwhile, in another part of Damascus, there's a Christian by the name of Ananias. God speaks to Ananias and says, I want you to go find Saul. We pick up the story in verse 17. So Ananias went and found Saul. He laid his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Instantly, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he regained his sight. Uh, We often refer to Acts chapter 9 as Saul's conversion. Saul's conversion. Everything changes radically in, in a moment in Saul's life. Nothing is the same from this point on. His name changes. He's no longer Saul. Now he's Paul. His job changes. He's no longer going around the world and rounding up Christians and arresting them. Now he's going around the world starting churches, trying to get everyone he comes in contact with to put their faith to believe in Jesus as well. I think it's fair to say Paul's life begins when he regains his sight. Paul's life begins when he regains his sight. My wife Wendy and I have six kids and As our kids are getting older, as they're launching into adulthood, I've started to have this thought, probably when our kids are adults, they're going to be scattered all over the country, and I'm pretty sure part of what that means is God wants me to buy an RV when I retire, (laughs) so that Wendy and I can travel travel around and visit our kids and stop at all the interesting places along the way. But a couple years ago, I was thinking, you know, if that's the plan for retirement, Probably we should give it a test run before retirement. So two summers ago, I convinced everybody, let's go on a week-long RV trip. I rented a Coachman Freelander bunkhouse, a beast of a machine, 31 feet long. It sleeps eight, and off we went for the shores of Lake Michigan. We didn't even make it to Iowa City before the side mirror started spinning like it was on Exorcist or something. Um, (laughs) Apparently there's a screw or a bolt that has to be tight to hold that mirror in place, and it was loose. And so I, I, you needed the right tool to tighten it so that it would stay in place, and I did not have that tool. We stopped at uh, a store, got some Allen wrenches, none of them were the right size. We got a big roll of duct tape, and we taped it in place to see if that would work. It would work for about 15 minutes, and then the wind would rip through the tape, and it'd start spinning again. So for most of that RV trip, I had no rearview mirror. Now I had no side mirror. I could only see what was directly in front of me out of the windshield, and I thought probably the wise thing to do is to set the cruise to about 57 miles an hour and just become the slowest moving vehicle on on the interstate. And that way I would never have to change lanes, and I could just keep barreling straight ahead toward my destination. I didn't have to pay attention to the cars lining up behind me, waiting to pass this slow-moving RV. Eventually they would, they'd pass me, I'd wave at them, they'd tell me I was number one, it was really, (laughs) really sweet. Driving is one of my favorite things to do, and that was a miserable way to drive. It was a miserable way to drive, and I wonder 
how many of us live our lives in a similar fashion? We, we have all of these tools available to us so that we can take in the whole picture, so we can see the whole picture clearly. And if we access these tools, it's going to make our life better. It's going to make our life safer, more enjoyable. Our life, yes, but also the lives of the people around us. And yet, how many of us, for all sorts of reasons throughout the course of our lives, we make decisions, we choose not to access those tools that are available to us? If we really want our lives to begin, if we really want our lives to begin, we have to, by God's grace, start to access all the tools that God has given us so that we can experience life to the full. There's a guy named Anthony DeMello. He was born in 1931 in India. Uh, he becomes a Jesuit priest. And for much of his vocational life, he, he talks about this idea. How do we experience the fullness of life that Jesus has for us? Uh, he writes about it, thinks about it, teaches about it. One of the books DeMello writes is called Awareness. The very first sentence in the book Anthony DeMello says, spirituality means waking up. Spirituality, that's really living a life of faith, right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. What is this spiritual life that God has for us? What is this all about? Spirituality means waking up. I would suggest that's what's going on in Acts chapter 9. God is waking Saul up. And I wonder if a big part of what's going on in the movie Jerry Maguire is this guy is waking up. He's finally starting to see some things about his life, about his choices, about who he is, some things that he does not like, some things that he knows need to change. He sees it, and yet there is a part of Jerry Maguire that is resisting this change that he knows would be good for him. Take a look. Hey. Hey, buddy. You okay? Fine. What's up? Came here to let you go. Pardon me? Came here to fire you, Jerry. It's real. You should say something. A crowded restaurant won't be a scene. You ungrateful. You just see yourself. You said fewer clients, you put it all down on paper. You know what I went through knowing I was gonna have to fire my mentor? Carrying that around in my head for a week? Could you get past yourself for a second? You'll lose. You want it smaller. Oh, I'm over it. Now I want all my clients and yours too. Jerry Maguire believes he's being called to a whole new kind of life. And yet when push comes to shove, he's resisting it with everything he has. He's been living his life a certain way for so long that it's become comfortable. It is the life that he knows. And now, as he is waking up, as he's growing up, as he's maturing, he starts to realize this change that he knows he needs 
it's going to mean life's going to be uncomfortable for a while. And he's resistant to that discomfort that comes with change and transformation. That gets us to our Bible story in John chapter 5. Jesus goes to Jerusalem. He's making his way to the temple. And before he gets to the temple mount, he stops at a place called the Pool of Bethesda. I'm not very much into mythology, uh, Greek and Roman gods, the pantheon, that sort of thing. I didn't pay a whole lot of attention to that in school, I guess. So I had to double check just to make sure this is accurate, and, and I think it is. There's a Greek god named Apollo, and Apollo has sons. One of Apollo's sons is Asclepios. He's the Greco-Roman god of medicine and healing. Asclepios. In, in Jesus' day, the Roman Empire of Jesus' day, the Greco-Roman world, all around the Roman Empire, there were these uh, wellness centers, uh, these places that uh, they had set up these retreat centers for healing and wellness, and there, uh, there was kind of this, I don't know, interest in holistic healing, body, mind, soul, and spirit. And so people from all around the Mediterranean world would go to these places of these retreat centers that they called an Asclepion. This is a picture of an Asclepion uh, in a city in Greece. You can go and, and visit it today. Asclepion, named in honor of Asclepios, the god who heals. In John 5, Jesus is in Jerusalem and he stops at an Asclepion called the pool of Bethesda, here's how John describes it, beginning in verse 3. Crowds of sick people, blind, lame, or paralyzed, lay on the porches. One of the men lying there had been sick for 38 years. When Jesus saw him and knew he had been ill for a long time, he asked him, would you like to get well? Jesus sees this guy finds out he's been sick for 38 years and asks him, would you like to get well? What kind of person asks someone who's been sick for 38 years, would you like to get well? Maybe the kind of person who's the son of God. The kind of person who begins his public ministry by quoting the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, the Lord has anointed me, to open the eyes of the blind. Maybe the kind of person who asks a question like this is the kind of person who understands there's a healing this man at the pool of Bethesda needs that has nothing to do with getting into the water of this Asclepion. Let me see if I can explain. Uh, we're in the middle of a message series called Say What? Taking a look at some of the shocking statements uh, of Jesus. Last week, we looked at a shocking statement that Jesus makes in the Sermon on the Mount when he commands us to love our enemies. There was an anti-pollution cartoon in the 1970s that sort of popularized this saying, we have met the enemy and he is us. We have met the enemy and he is us. When it, when it comes to the spiritual life, when it comes to living a life of faith and following after Jesus, we are often our own worst enemy. And part of the saving work that Jesus brings about in our lives is waking us up so that we can see, so that we can become aware of the way we are shaping our lives to get in the way of, to avoid, to obstruct 
the saving work that God's trying to do. Spirituality means waking up, Anthony DeMello writes, and then just a little bit later in this book, Awareness, he says this, people don't really want to be cured. What they want is relief. A cure is painful. I'm a big fan of food. The older I get, the more I've started to realize when I eat too much too late at night, there's a good chance I'm going to get heartburn and it's going to be so uncomfortable I'm not going to be able to sleep very well that night. How can I make sure I don't get heartburn that keeps me up all night long? Take antacid medicine, of course. You remember the old Alka-Seltzer commercial? Plop, plop, fizz, fizz, oh, what a relief. relief. Yeah, we're a very old congregation this morning. Uh, if I get heartburn at night, I can take Tums or Rolades or antacid to provide temporary relief. Or I could stop eating lasagna at 9 o'clock at night. People don't really want to be cured. What they want is relief. A cure is painful. That's a silly example of that truth. We can all think of some pretty tragic examples of the truth of that statement, can't we? We're still in the middle of an opioid crisis in this country, in America. These are statistics from March of 2021, six or seven months ago. 136 people in this country dying every day from an opioid overdose. People who are trying to get some temporary relief and it's killing them. Would you like to get well? Jesus asked this man in in John 5 and, and I'm convinced part of the reason Jesus is able to ask this man this question, Jesus knows physical healing is not the only healing he needs. This guy's been sick for 38 years. How long has he been lying at the pool of Bethesda? The Bible's not clear. What the Bible is clear about is he's unable to move from his mat to the water. So I'm guessing he's been on that mat for a long time. 38 hours, 38 days, 38 months, 38 years. Bible's not clear. Long enough that this man knows, he's become convinced, I'm never going to get in that water. Nobody's going to get me there. And yet he keeps lying there day after day after day, doing the same thing, expecting different results. Why? Because he's just like you and me. When are you going to stop being so angry? When are you going to stop worrying all the time about everything? When are you going to stop trying to control every situation by over-planning? When are you going to stop going to those pornographic websites? When are you going to stop drinking yourself to sleep every night? When are you going to get over your insecurity? When are you going to get some help for your narcissism? On and on and on we can go. Here at Hope in the recovery community we talk about hurts, habits, hang-ups. And when those things in our life, those destructive uh, behaviors or thought patterns that have been tripping us up time and time and again for years and years, maybe for 38 years, when they trip us up yet again, it hurts. It hurts us, it hurts the people around us, it's painful. And it can leave us in a pretty hopeless and helpless kind of place. For some of us, when we 
trip up over the same thing yet again. It can overwhelm us with guilt and shame. It can put us in a place where we don't want God to see us. We want to hide from God. Others of us, the pain in our life, whether it's a physical ailment or an emotional wound, that pain can convince us over time that God does not see us, God does not care about us, God does not love us, God has turned his back on us, God has abandoned us in our pain. Nothing could be further from the truth. Spirituality means waking up. And part of the way God wakes us up is by helping us learn how to pay attention to the right things. So I want us to do a little prayer exercise together today. Uh, This prayer exercise is going to serve two purposes. Number one, it will show us how difficult it is, how, how challenging it is for us to pay attention to the right things. But I think the other thing this prayer exercise will do, it it might actually convince us that this is doable. That with God's help, by God's grace, we can learn to pay attention to the right things so that God can heal us. This prayer exercise begins in Psalm 62. It's up on the screen and let's read this out loud together. Read it with me. For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. As you read through the Bible, one of the things you will notice, if you're paying attention, is the the biblical writers, they use these ideas of healing and salvation almost interchangeably. That healing and salvation are very closely connected in the minds of the biblical writers. And so here's King David writing Psalm 62 and saying, one of the ways that we experience the salvation, the healing that God has for us is by spending time with God in quiet, in silence. And so I want to take some time to do that today. And here's some instructions for how we're going to do that. Um, It's about It's an exercise about learning to pay attention to what we're paying attention to. One of the things I never or seldom pay attention to is my breathing. You pay attention to your breathing very often. Breathing is one of these interesting things. Uh, It's an involuntary bodily response. We breathe whether we're thinking about it or paying attention to it or not. And at the same time, if we start to pay attention to our breathing, we can regulate it. We can change it. We can control our breathing. We can speed it up. We can slow it down. So here's the the prayer exercise we're going to do. When we breathe in, I want you to just pray silently in your heart and your mind, Lord Jesus Christ. And then when you breathe out, when you exhale, have mercy on me. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. And we're we're going to do this for 60 seconds, just quietly in your mind, in your heart. If you want to simplify it, you can simply go, Jesus, help. Jesus, help. The second thing I want you to do while you're doing this for 60 seconds, I want you to try to pay attention to when your mind wanders, when your mind starts to drift. Some of us are wired in such a way that when we wander, when our minds drift away in prayer, we start to beat ourselves up. Oh, what's wrong with me? I can't even do this for 60 seconds. So I just want you to understand this is a judgment-free exercise. When your mind wanders, because it will wander. 
Just notice it. Pay attention to it. Observe it. That's interesting. Maybe pay attention to where it's wandering, but then come back and start breathing again. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. Pray again. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. We're going to try this for 60 seconds. Got it? Are you ready? You may begin. not my own partaking my passive aggressiveness can be devastating I'm terrified and mistrusting and you never met anyone who's as closed down as I am sometimes you see everything you see every part, you see all my light, and you see my dark, you dig everything. 
the funniest woman that you've ever known. I'm the dullest woman that you've ever known. I'm the most gorgeous woman that you've ever known. And you've never met anyone who's as everything as I am sometimes. You see everything. You see every part. Thank you, Heather. Thank you, Alyssa, for sharing with us the lyrics of the great theologian Alanis Morissette. <laughs> I don't know who she was thinking of when she wrote the lyrics to that song. It's a song called Everything, and if you go and listen to it later, just know we had to edit it a little bit for church purposes. Um, she writing it to someone she's dating or a spouse or a really close friend. But when I hear those lyrics, it sounds like a prayer to me, to a God who sees everything about us, every part of us. There's not anything to which God can't relate in our lives, and God's still here. That, that prayer exercise that we did, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. And then our minds begin to wander, our minds begin to drift to different places. And when we start paying attention to where our mind goes, one of the things we will discover, sometimes our mind drifts to the light of Christ inside us and, and the victories that we are seeing, the growth and the maturing that we are seeing. And often our minds will drift to other places. Places that we try to drown out with the noise of our life so that we can avoid it. So we can pretend like it's not an issue. These dark things that keep tripping us up time and time again. And somehow we have shaped our lives so that we are resisting the healing touch that Jesus wants to give us so that we can be well. It doesn't matter what you've done. God's still here. Doesn't matter what you've gone through, what you're going through, God's still here. Nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And when we actually stop and think about that, pay attention to that, 
something miraculous about that, isn't there? God's love for you is miraculous. God's love for you brings dead people to life. God's love for you heals you and makes you well. Remember that guy, Paul, that we were looking at a little bit earlier in the message? He has this radical transformation that takes place in his life that God brings about in his life. And then Paul lives this perfect life of faith happily ever after after that, right? Not quite. Here's what Paul writes in Romans 7 after his conversion. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. Paul's not perfect and he knows it. A little bit later he will say, oh, what a miserable person I am. We are all wonderfully complex creatures, aren't we? Paul is not perfect. His conversion didn't make him perfect. His conversion woke him up. And now he's starting to see. Now he's starting to pay attention to some things that he had been overlooking in his life. And now he starts to see. He is aware of the change and the transformation he needs in his life. And he knows after his conversion, he cannot change himself. Before his conversion, he thought he could. If I just get righteous enough and holy enough and I I do all the religious things, then I'll become the me I want to be. But after his conversion, he knows there is no hope in that. And so he actually writes about it. He pays attention to his dark. He pays attention to those things that need to change and the things he's doing wrong, absolutely. But it's not the focus of his attention. Look what he says a couple verses later, verse 24 and 25. Who will free me from this life that's dominated by sin and death? Thank God the answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul pays attention to the mercy of God that is new every day. Paul pays attention to amazing grace, to God's unending love. And he gets to this place where he realizes this is the power to change him to help his life begin, this is the power to change the world. What are you paying attention to? What brought you to worship today? Are you looking for some relief? You come to the great physician hoping he'll give you a pill that'll give you some temporary relief, your spiritual fix for the week until you need to come back again? Or do you come to the great physician looking for the cure, for the new and everlasting life that Jesus offers us when he asks us, would you like to get well? And it begins this process of waking us up, of bringing us to life. Maybe what you need, this radical transformation that God can bring about in your life to help your life begin. Maybe for you it has everything to do with a miraculous physical healing. There are people in our church, I can think of people lying in hospital rooms right now or at home recovering from major surgeries or still battling uh, diseases and illnesses and we are praying for God to do a miracle in their bodies to make their bodies work the way God created their bodies to work. Maybe that's the miracle you need. Pray for it. Ask for it. We believe Jesus can make people well. Maybe the miracle is connected to a hurt 
a habit, a hang-up in your life that keeps tripping you up. And you need God to do this miraculous work in your life to help you overcome. I think the miracle we all need is to trust, to believe in this slow, patient, ongoing work of God in our lives to transform us into new people by changing the way we think. I don't know what you think about God, but far too often we think the wrong things about God. God's not mad at you. God's not disappointed in you. God loves you. God sees you. God sees every part. And God's still here. The Apostle Paul who says, oh man, I'm doing all these terrible things that I don't want to do and all the good things that I want to do, I'm not doing them. He still knows God is with him. He still knows God loves him. He experiences this reality. He writes about it in Romans 2 verse 4. Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Paul can write that because he's experiencing that in his own life. Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that the kindness of God is intended to turn you from your sin. Don't you see, church? Wake up. Can't you see? Allow God to open your eyes. What could be more miraculous than that? Would you stand with me? And let's pray as we get ready to sing our closing song. Lord, thank you for being here with us in this moment. We come to you and we confess the ways that we resist, the ways that we believe, but we need you to help our unbelief. We know, we trust these stories that we read in the pages of your word that you're still doing the same thing today. You're healing people. You're making people well. You are the God who heals. You are the God who saves. You are the God who performs these miracles. You breathe life into dust. And we become living beings. Lord, we need you to do that for us right now in this moment. And I don't know the specifics around what everyone in this room or what everyone who's worshiping with us online right now, the specifics of the miracle that we need. But Lord, I pray that you would give us the faith to ask for it and to trust you to do this work. You've already begun this good work in us, Lord. Now carry it out to completion in the name of Jesus. Amen.